you would, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we're going to be talking through easily one of the heaviest um, passages of Scripture. Uh, But my sincere hope is that as we walk away from this passage that we will see how even in the the darkest of times there is hope. And that even in the, the weightiness of God's judgment that there is grace. As a reminder to us, uh, we're working our way through the book of Genesis. We finished the book of John, transitioned to the book of Genesis. Um, We've spent the last four weeks, five weeks, walking through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and the first part of Genesis 3 um, to kind of catch us up with where we'll pick up this morning. Um, God the Creator has spoke into existence all that we see, all that is created. As a part of that creation, He created Adam or the man from the ground. Adam searched all of creation to find a helper. There was none found fitting. So God then created what Adam would name woman. There's, there's a little bit of a misnomer at this part in the story. We, we always refer to Adam and Eve as this collective unit, as if they were Adam and Eve from the beginning, which they actually were not. Up until the fall, they were Adam and woman. Adam or Eve receives her name Eve from Adam after the fall. We'll talk about that this morning. Um, But that's what we're going to pick up. Last week we studied um, what is commonly known as the fall. So Adam and Eve partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had forbade. God questions them, says, what have you done? They admit to their sin, and that's where we pick up this morning with God pronouncing his curses and his judgments um, upon both the serpent as well as upon Adam and the woman who will eventually be named Eve. If you will, join me chapter 3. We'll start in verse 14. The word of God says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, this being tempting the woman and the man with the fruit, and lying to them about what they would receive. You are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. He, referring to the one who is to come, the son of Adam, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, noting yet again, there's not the use of the term Eve, because Eve has not yet been named. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. But he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living which is textually significant. We'll talk about that this morning. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
then likely the three, two most, three most hearkening verses in all of Scripture. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, swirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Join me in prayer. Father, we are, we are humbled at the, the power of your judgment. We are, we are saddened that, that we as, as, as mankind, we as a race, lost our ability to commune with you. Father, we, we cannot fathom the gap that exists between who we are and who you are, between our character and your character. But God, we beg you this morning to show us that gap. Show us how wide the gap is between how things should be and how they are today. But God, we also ask of you this morning that as we dive into this text, that you show us how from the beginning, grace and hope was the answer. That this was never intended to be a passage of despair, but was intended to be a passage of hope. So God, we pray this morning that as we search your word, that you soften our hearts, that you give me truthful words and complete words to accurately preach your scriptures. In your precious holy name we pray, amen. So anytime I preach from this pulpit, there's always two questions we want to answer. First one is, what does the text mean? So just Plainly spoken, what does the text mean? If we leave here and we can't explain to someone else what the passage means, then we failed. I have failed you. And the second thing we want to discuss is, okay, now that we understand what the passage actually says, what does it mean for us in 2019 in Oxford, Georgia? And how does the word of God apply to the lives that we live each and every day? So that's our task. What does the text mean? What does it mean for our lives today? Broad strokes, we're going to talk about several different components this morning. We're going to talk about, first, God's curse, the creator's curse upon the serpent. The word cursed is used very specifically. God does not pronounce a curse directly upon Adam or upon woman. He pronounces judgment. There's a key differentiation there. The only, the only curse handed out here is upon the serpent. The serpent has been forever bound apart from the grace and communion of God. But Adam and the woman are not. They receive judgments. They receive suffering. But they themselves are not cursed. So we'll talk through the curse to the serpent, the judgment to the woman, the judgment to Adam, and then we'll talk about collectively God's finishing acts in the Garden of Eden. The naming of Eve by Adam and then the dispelling of Adam and Eve from the garden forever. 
Verse 14, Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, this being deceiving the woman and deceiving Adam, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. First thing that we should note here is that the, the curse upon the serpent is both a physical curse, so he has to crawl in his belly, eat dust all the days of his life. There'll be strife between him and the woman. Those are all physical curses. But there's also a spiritual curse, and that God plants enmity between the serpent's offspring and the offspring of the woman. Why that is spiritual is because just because we are born of the woman, just because we are born as mankind, does not mean that we are the offspring of the woman, because that is a spiritual reality pointing to what is to come through the lineage of the person of Eve. So there are physical, there's the physical being born, which makes us a child of mankind, a child of Adam, but there's the spiritual component here as well. That is, for those of us found covered by the covenant of Christ, we are spiritually part of the offspring of the woman. And because there is that spiritual significance, God drives a wedge between the woman and the serpent so that spiritually the two will never cross again. What's interesting here is you have, you have that the pinnacle of, of godly judgment and anger being poured out in Genesis 3. But God does not kill the serpent. He, doesn't, he does not chop off the head of the serpent here. Instead, he does something different. He says, you will be defeated. You will bite the heel of the son of Adam, ultimately Christ, but he will crush your head. Which begs the question, why are we here today? Because had, had God saw fit in his omnipotent power to cut off the serpent, reality would not be what we know it to be today. We live today in this in-between. We live between the curse and the kingdom, the kingdom that is to come. So the question is, why does God do it that way? Why not just make this quick and easy, chop off the serpent, pronounce judgment upon Adam and Eve, and then seek to reunify a relationship together? The answer I would propose for us today lies in the fact that what is happening in Genesis 3, specifically verses 14 and 15, is a battle for the souls of mankind. God just doesn't want Adam and the woman to be to, to have this relationship and this communion with him. He wants to win their hearts. He wants to be the object of their affections. And the only way to do that is to create this period of in-between where we live as both 
pronouncements of judgment, but with the option, the choice, to be covered in the covenant of Christ so that we may participate in his kingdom. This could have been a very quick affair, but God did not see fit to do that way because he wants to win our hearts and our souls unto himself. Verse 15 contains this word, enmity. It means strife, discord, hatred. And generally, when we read this word, enmity, we take it to mean something very, very bad. I mean, generally, right, strife, discord, they're bad things. Have a, carry a very negative connotation with them. This enmity, though, points to something much greater and much bigger than we could ever imagine. What God is doing here is he's setting forever a course. He's setting, he's setting out a spiritual reality, whereas the sons of the woman those found in the covenant blood of Christ will forever despise the works of the serpent. I'll say that one more time. God is creating this wedge to give us, those of us found in the covenant blood of Christ, hope for the kingdom that is to come and to give us hatred for the works of the serpent. So this word enmity is God's first redemptive work in us. We, we acknowledge here that we are dead in our sins and trespasses because of this sin. And in being dead, something has to bring us back to life. And that something has to be the work of God. That work begins right here. Immediately upon pronouncing judgment upon the serpent, God begins the work of redemption. So what is, what is hopeless here, what, it, what, is, what seemingly leads us to despair, God has already began to plant redemptive work from the beginning. Now, I know this whole concept of enmity can be, it's a little heady, it's a little hard to get your head wrapped around. Um, Ligon Duncan, who's the professor, chancellor, at Reformed Theological Seminary tells this story, which I think helps um, categorize and bring into reality the concept of enmity. He tells the story, um, late 1700s, uh, there's a farmer uh, living in Mississippi, and he was known throughout the community for his harshness and his hardness towards his family, towards his wife, um, towards those in the community, towards his laborers, towards his workers, and he was just notorious, very short, very hard, um, very discouraging to the people around him. A farmer ended up going to a revival, um, and there the redemptive work of the Lord began in him. Came back to his farm, and by all meaningful accounts, was treating the people in his life much better. Was treating his wife better, was working in an understanding way with his children. Uh, he was treating his workers um, as though they had dignity. And then one day, he got discouraged. Went out in the field. The field had been destroyed by insects overnight. And he just lost it. 
just straight back down the road, right? Right back to the person that he was. Downgrading everyone, saying hateful things to everyone, just generally grumpy, just angry at everyone that he came into contact with. After a few days and kind of this blind anger, he came back home. He walked into his home. His wife was in the kitchen um, preparing a meal. And he, he just sat down in a chair in despair. He said to his wife, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I know what I should do. I know I should be a better person. I know I should treat all of those in my life with dignity, but I just can't do it. I was headed down this right track. I was headed down this right path. And then I got discouraged, and I went off the rails. And his wife, in a great moment of wisdom, responded to him, and she said, Oh, no, my dear husband. The very fact that you realize and despise what you have always been, that is the miracle of change in your life. And that is the concept of enmity. This enmity that God places between the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of the woman, that is the enmity. It's not that we are perfect in this life. It's not that we will do everything as prescribed in the scriptures, but that it is we will learn to despise the works of the serpent. So even here, even in verse 15, that enmity pointing to something greater. It's pointing to redemptive work. Romans 8 cries out, I think, from this passage. You have the, the pronouncing of judgment, the pronouncing of curses upon the serpent, upon the man and the woman. But you have God, here in verse 15, planting the seed of redemption. And that seed of redemption manifests itself in Romans 8. This is what Romans 8 says. It says, For you, referring to the church in Rome, those covered by the covenant blood of Christ, those who have experienced the redemptive work of enmity, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that, he may be, so that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, sufferings that originated in Genesis 3 as the pronouncement of judgment upon man and woman, those very sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul goes on in Romans 8 later in the chapter and in the, the believer's triumph he says these things. He says what then are we to say about these things if God is for us who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son but offered him up for us all. How will he also how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through those who loved, through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not the juxtaposition to Genesis 3? This is the fulfillment of the covenant. This is the fleshing out of the enmity that God places between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So I encourage us, do not despair. Realize that the judgment is real. Realize that the curse upon the serpent is real. Realize that we struggle today because of the sin of Adam and Eve. The life we live today is not as it should be. It... Amen to that. <laughs> it is not as it should be. Life as God intended it should be as described in the garden, but it is not. But in that heaviness, in that heaviness of brokenness, realize that God has provided a way and that it started here with God placing enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. The next two phrases, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, is a prophecy of things to come. The bruising of the son of Adam's heel is Christ's death on the cross. And the crushing of the serpent's head is Christ's defeat rising from the grave and providing for us found in the covenant blood ultimate victory over death and sin. These two verses are one of the great ironies of human existence. What began as our greatest curse, our greatest judgment, becomes our greatest blessing. And this, this, these two verses outline the narrative, the meta-narrative that will hang over all of Scripture and all of human existence until the kingdom is established here on earth. Everything that follows from Genesis 4 to Revelation 22 is the manifestation of these two verses. So, not to be anticlimactic, but you already knew what the end was going to be right at the very beginning. But it should produce in us great faith as we read Genesis 4 through Revelation 22 and we see the working out of God's promises here, of God's placing of enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. It should provide us great faith and great solace to see those things played out as God intended. Let's move on to verse 16. This is God's judgment to the woman. Before we read this, I want to make an important distinction that I think can, can trip us up sometimes. There's a certain tendency when we read these, read um, God's judgment upon the woman and God's judgment upon Adam to think that things like work and labor and childbirth and the marriage relationship are curses upon mankind. They are in fact not. All of those institutions, work, labor, 
childbirth, reproduction, and the marriage relationship were all institutions that existed prior to the fall. What happens at the fall is those institutions become corrupted by sin. They become corrupted as God pronounces judgment upon them. Not curse upon the woman and upon Adam, but judgment amongst, upon those institutions to create pain and suffering. Verse 16, to the woman God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The commentator Matthew Henry summarizes the, the judgment of this verse very well, particularly the first part dealing with multiplied pain in childbearing. Matthew Henry says this, he says, The sorrows of childbearing are here multiplied, not only the travailing throes, but the indispositions before, for its sorrow is from the conception and the nursing toils and vexations after, and after all, if the children prove wicked and foolish, there are more than ever the heaviness of her that bore them. Yeah. Um, thank you, Matthew Henry, for your Sunday morning pick-me-up. Um, but he's right. He's right that the, the reality, remember, that we live in today, post-curse, pre-kingdom, the reality that we live in today is that there is multiplied pain with bearing children. There's the physical pain, there's the, the struggle and the, the trial of bearing a child, but then there's the, the emotional and the spiritual pain of bearing a child that may go wayward, that you pour your life into, that you pour your resources into, that you go through pain to or pain for, and they grow up and they walk their own path in the opposite direction of you, in the opposite direction of the Lord, and the pain is yet again multiplied to the woman. Notice here that this judgment is not happenstance. Think about what has just unfolded in Genesis 1 through Genesis 3. God created Adam and the woman. And what do Adam and the woman do? They walk away from their creator. They walk the opposite direction from where they should go. So God's judgment here is mirroring, is mimicking the actions that have just occurred. The end of verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Notice that prior to this passage, Adam and Eve, the woman and Adam, sorry, I fall victim to it myself, um, had existed in the garden in right relationship with nature and with God. There was no discord in the marital relationship. Verse 16 introduces this discord. That the woman's desire shall be for her husband, but her husband will rule over her. I don't think it should be surprising to us that fast forward thousands of years that we are still seeing the effects of this judgment upon us today. 
if there's one institution, and I'm, I'm not just talking societal attack, I'm talking our own hearts, minds, and souls attack. It is marriage. This is one of the arenas of life where the works of the serpent loves to continue to attack those of us who are in the church. We're living, remember, in this reality, post-fall, pre-kingdom, where there is struggle, where there is toil, where there's judgment. And marriage, from verse 16, is one of the institutions that the serpent will continue to attack over and over and over and over again. And I say that to us for two reasons. One is to be aware. Um, you know, I say often, Sarah and I say often, that marriage is no joke. Um, it, when, you, when you make that covenant to your spouse, you have entered into a realm of spiritual conflict, and you will be assailed from the day you say I do to the day that you die. And it will never stop. It will be constant. When one, when one challenge passes, another will arise. I don't say that for us to be discouraged. I say that for us to be aware. But I also say it for us to continue to take the institution of marriage seriously. If we as a church here at Haynes Creek in a global church, capital C, do not take the institution of marriage seriously, and if we do not prove that the gospel can be greater than the works of the serpent, then we have very little ground to stand upon. Marriage statistics within, within the church, outside of the church, they pretty much mirror one another. Divorce rates, roughly the same. So the challenge for us is we have to do better than that. Because if we can't hold the very, one of the very institutions that existed prior to the fall, if we can't cast ourselves upon the grace and mercy of God and, and ask and beg for his mercy upon us to make it from I do unto death, if we cannot do that, then we are failing as a church. We are failing as a church. Beyond this, beyond just the marriage institution, we also see a deterioration, deterioration of all human relationships. So remember the spiritual reality. There's the, the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman. The, the, this curse upon human relationship gets passed from the marriage down to the offspring, down to children's children, the children's children. And what we have as a result is a world in conflict. Play this out, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, we know what happens. We have the first taking of human life. Why? Because there is now a corruption of the human relationship. Yet again, I tell us this not to be discouraging, but I tell us this for us to realize Post-curse, pre-kingdom, this is the world we live in. People are not going to get along. It's just not going to happen. 
Moving on to verses 17 through 19, this is God's judgment upon Adam. Yet again, same qualifying statement here. God is not cursing Adam. God pronounces judgment upon his work and his labor, but he is not saying that work and labor itself are sinful institutions. They existed prior to the fall. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Really, there's three components to this judgment upon Adam. The first is work's going to be hard. <laughs> Amen, anybody? Um, it's going to be tough. It's, it's going to be painful and it's going to be toilsome. There, there's no, no get out of jail free card. If you want to eat, you got to work. And work is going to be hard. That's the first. The second says, verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. I love this. So the judgment is the work's going to be hard, and when you do all the hard work, eh, you're going to get some plants, but you're mainly going to get thorns and thistles. So all this work, all this effort is going to produce very, 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 very little outcome. Derek Kidner says this. I think this is a great summation of this concept. Thorns and thistles are eloquent signs of nature untamed and encroaching. The nature miracles of Jesus give us some idea of the control which man under God might have exercised over his environment. We think today about the Lord Jesus walking on water. We think of the Lord Jesus stilling the wind. We think of the Lord Jesus multiplying the loaves. And it causes our minds to run and ask, what would it have been like had Adam not sinned? And it makes us wonder, what's it going to be like to work in a world not violated by sin? It's going to be a very incredible thing. Fulfillment, that word doesn't even approach what we're going to experience in a world which is not compromised by sin when we labor. We're going to love that labor, and we're going to see the full fruit of that labor. So the curse, the judgment, work will be hard, number one. Number two, the work that we do do will not be fruitful. And I think we, collectively, as a church, knowing what, what work and what labor could be, should feel that gnawing tension in our souls that when we work, it's just never what it should be. It just never produces the outcome it should produce. And there's frustration there. There's, <coughs> there's struggle there. But I think there's hope there too. There's hope in saying, post-curse, pre-kingdom, this is the reality we live in. And as we, we interact with a work-obsessed culture, it allows us to speak into that lack of fulfillment that they feel. I'm yet to meet anyone who says, I am perfectly satisfied in my job. And if they do say that, they're lying. You know why? Because they have to work with other people and other people are sinful and inevitably it doesn't ever work out quite the way they want it to. So we, we have a society chasing after an ideal that's unattainable. But here, in this passage, 
We have insight that we can offer to the world around us in a loving way to say, hey, you know, you're never going to find that fulfillment you're chasing in your work. Never going to happen. Lastly, we see in these verses that Adam will see no earthly rest from the burden of work. There's a, there's a whole rabbit trail that we could go off on surrounding the concept of retirement coming out of this verse. And how it's a sub- subversion of the order of reality post-curse and pre-kingdom. But today we'll leave it simply at this, that Adam, the sons of Adam, mankind, will never, this side of the kingdom, escape the burden of work. We will work, it will be hard, it will not be beneficial, and we will do it every day. Aren't you so glad to be here with us this morning? Verses 20 to 24 This is the the summation of God's work in Eden. Verse 20 is the verse I've been referring to multiple times this morning. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. It's very easy just to skim over that verse because it's just kind of factual. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Fine. But there's a deeper truth there that harkens back to verse 15. Remember, the enmity in verse 15 is the the hope for creation. It's the hope of redemption. And what Adam is doing here in verse 20 is he is saying, God, I hear your voice. I see your plan. And in faith, I am naming the woman Eve because she will be the one who brings brings about life. So just take a step back. Think what, think what has transpired in 20, 21 verses here. You have the woman being tempted, eating of the fruit, passing it to her husband, him eating of the fruit, and curses and judgment being pronounced upon the serpent and upon, and upon man and woman. But God, yet again, in a, in a flash of hope, pronounces upon Eve, the task of bringing about the Redeemer. The the offspring of Eve, the spiritual reality, will be and will culminate in the son of Adam or the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing in, one of us and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Big picture here, we get the idea. God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden never to return. I think there can be some confusion for us in verse, particularly verses 22 and 23. What is God saying here with all of this 
He's eaten of the tree. He now knows good from evil. He's like us, so we should kick him out of the garden. It's, it's easy for us to think, well, God's kicking him out of the garden to protect something. True, but God's not kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden to protect himself. God's kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden to protect themselves. Remember that the only being cursed in the whole, this whole passage is the serpent. Adam and Eve are not cursed. Adam and Eve have the ability through the son of Adam to be redeemed into relationship with God the Father. But this is why the Father sends them out of the garden. Because now that they know good from evil, they are without excuse. And they have already chosen evil. And if they continue to choose evil upon evil upon evil, God would have to pronounce curse upon them, never to be reconciled to him again, to forever be placed outside of communion with God the Father. So, in God's loving kindness, he sends Adam and Eve away, and hearkening back to imagery from Ezekiel, or also echoed in Ezekiel, God places a cherubim at the tree of life, symbolizing the protection of mankind from the holiness and righteousness of God. So what does this mean for us this morning? What does all this mean? I think there are three takeaways for us, if you will. First is to remember that even from the beginning, any, even from Genesis 3, the beginning of the post curse reality that we live in today, that God was designing and preaching the gospel even then. He's placing enmity to give hope and to begin the redemptive work in you and I. He grants us grace by expelling us from the garden so that we will not become forever cursed as the serpent is. God, from the very beginning, even in the way that, that Adam names Eve, is heaping grace upon grace upon redemption to mankind. He is reserving from mankind the fullness of his curse with the hope of redemption through the son of Adam. Secondly, and we've mentioned this several times, we have to remember that this gives us context for the world that we live in today. We live post-fall, pre-kingdom. As a result, things are not going to work the way they should work. We see this in marriages. We see this in childbirth. We see this in our relationships with other people. We see it in the futility and the way in which we work. And if you, 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 take, if you take any of the societal ills that we would proclaim today and you wind them back down to their base, it will be one of those five things. But that doesn't mean that we don't fight for the kingdom that is to come. This should give us hope to be able to speak to our coworkers, to our wives, to our families, to those in the church with us, to say, no, it's not as it should be. But that points us to something. Because it is not the way it should be, we should turn to the one who can make it the way it should be. 
and we should throw ourselves at the feet of King Jesus and beg for his covenant blood. Lastly, I think this passage is is a challenge to the church to recapture a full and robust theology of pain and suffering. Now here's what I mean by that. Somewhere in the last 80 years, there has become an, an over emphasis on comfort, which we all see that play out every single day. Pretty much most of our society will pursue comfort as an end to itself. So pursue comfort at all means, do whatever's easiest, et cetera, et cetera. That's an ill within itself, but what's been lost is a proper theology of pain and suffering. Here's what I mean by that. Pain and suffering are rooted in the judgment and in the curses, yes. But remember that God designed this way of being, that God designed this reality to bring into our lives the hope of redemption. So what does that mean? That means that there's no such thing as pointless pain and suffering. It all has a redemptive and a sanctifying purpose. I think that's a poignant reality for us to remember today. We, we live in a world where there are a lot of ideologies. There are a lot of people who believe a lot of different things. But when it comes to explaining pain and suffering... That's the one area where most have no answer. Other than, wow, that's really tough. I'm sorry, I don't really know what to say. It's not the answer for believers. Not the answer for those of us who are found in the covenant blood of Christ. Remember this morning that all suffering and all pain is rooted in a deeper narrative. Pain and suffering entered the world because of sin... But that very pain and suffering is also used to bring about the work of redemption in our lives. This is good news that we need to hear, but more so, it is good news that the world around us needs to hear. Join me in prayer. (coughs) Father, we love you. We, We thank you for bleak passages of scripture to show us and to reveal to us our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. God, we we pray as we leave here this morning that we rightly understand ourselves as those who are affected by this curse and by these judgments that we rightly understand that we live in a reality post-curse and pre-kingdom where pain and suffering will be the norm. But God, we also ask in the same breath that you remind us of the hope that is to come, that you remind us of the hope that can be found in the enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the the woman. God, we pray that we would carry that hope with us. 
we ask that we would be a people who, who look at the reality around us, at the world around us, acknowledge the existence of pain and suffering, but then speak hope into that pain and suffering. God, I pray this morning that we find hope and joy and the love that God the Father pours out upon the woman in this passage. Even here, even in these little details, we see the story of redemption. We see the one who has fallen aside, being brought back to right relationship with God and being bestowed with glory in the heavenly, heavenly places. So God, I ask this morning that our souls yearn for that that we yearn to be brought from our frightful, broken state to the triumph of Romans 8, where we are more than conquerors, where we are co-heirs with Christ. So, Father, we ask as we worship now that these truths flood over our souls, that as we leave this place today to go back into the post-fall pre-kingdom reality, that we do not do so as those who have no hope. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.